Glory to Jesus Christ and welcome to the Athens and Jerusalem podcast brought to you by Theosis Academy and the Orientale Lumen Foundation. In this podcast, we will feature weekly lectures from the late, great Metropolitan Kalnistos of Diocleia. So please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's recording is taken from Metropolitan Callistus Ware's course, Jesus Christ, Yesterday, Today, and Forever. The lecture itself is titled, Mary as Theotokos. If you enjoyed the lecture, you can get unlimited access to the complete course online at theosisacademy.org. Now for Metropolitan Callistus of Diocleia. Let me begin this fifth talk with a story, a ghost story. I am very fond of ghost stories. This particular story is from the collection by M.R. James, The Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, and it is called A School Story. The story reflects the situation in English education a hundred years ago, when uh, boys were expected to study Latin grammar and syntax in great detail. Indeed, I was brought up that way too, less than a hundred years ago, because though I'm getting on in time, I'm not quite as old as that. Anyway, in this story, the master is teaching conditional clauses in Latin. This, that is to say, clauses that begin with the word if. If it rains tomorrow, I shall not go for a walk. If it had rained yesterday, I would have stayed indoors all day. The rules in Latin grammar for conditional clauses are very complicated as I remember with pain from my childhood. The master in M.R. James's account uh, tells the boys each to write in Latin a conditional clause of their own invention. And all the pieces of paper are gathered together. And the master looks at the top one on the pile. And immediately he grows pale and begins to shake and rushes out of the room. The boys are intrigued. Who has made a grammatical error so gross as to distress the master in this striking manner? The top piece of paper says, if you will not come to me, I shall come to you. The grammar is perfectly correct, but the curious point is that it is not in the handwriting of any of the boys in the room. Now, I won't spoil the story for you to tell what did come to the master and what happened to him when it came. 
you must read the story for yourself. But I simply wish to apply that conditional clause, if you will not come to me, I will come to you, to the event of Christ's incarnation. Because of the fall, because of the accumulation of personal sins, generation after generation, we humans were separated from God. We, by our own efforts, could not come back to him, could not cross the abyss that sin had created. So because we could not come to him, he came to us. That is the basic meaning of the Incarnation. Now let's turn to my main theme for this fifth talk. That is the dispute between St. Cyril of Alexandria and Nestorius Patriarch of Constantinople. This dispute took place during a limited period of three years, 428 to 431. This was a high point in the early Christian discussions about the mystery of Christ. In the dispute between Nestorius and Cyril, there was a collision, a confrontation between two different approaches to Christ. And these two approaches are usually labeled the Alexandrian and the Antiochian. The distinction between them becomes clear during the fourth century. The Alexandrian approach, of which St. Athanasius of Alexandria is an outstanding example, emphasizes firmly the Godhead of Christ, that he is true God from true God. But it could be said that the Alexandrians do not speak with sufficient realism and vividness about his human aspect. Athanasius has been criticized for precisely this. He does not speak usually of the human soul of Christ. He talks only of his body. There has been a lengthy dispute whether Athanasius believed Christ had a human soul. There is evidence to suggest in his later writings that he did. But even so, it is not sufficiently prominent as a theological factor in his teaching. Athanasius certainly believed that Christ is truly human. But it could be said 
with all due reverence for him as a great father of the church, that he doesn't have a great deal to tell us about the human psychology of the Saviour. No single father can say everything. That is why in our orthodox approach to the patristic tradition, we are concerned to identify the consensus of the fathers, the convergence between them, how each father confirms and complements the other fathers. The Antiochene approach is chiefly exemplified in the 4th century by Diodore of Tarsus, and then in the 5th century by Theodore of Mopsuestia and by Nestorius. Nestorius is not the outstanding representative of the Antiochene approach, uh, Theodore is a far greater theologian. But I'll talk about Nestorius because I want to compare his views with Cyril's. The Antiochene approach has a firm and clear grasp of Christ's humanness. It speaks vividly of his genuinely human psychology. It allows full scope to his human soul. But the Antiochians do not speak so clearly about the unity of his purse. They did indeed believe that Christ is one and not two, but it could be said they have not found the best way of expressing this. So it could be argued that the two approaches, the Alexandrian and the Antiochene, complete one another, and we need to take the best from both. Regrettably, this did not happen in the early 5th century. The two approaches, instead of enriching one another, came into conflict. Let's just say a word about the persons involved. First of all, Nestorius. Uh, he was born towards the end of the 4th century in Syria, but he was Greek in language and culture. He entered a monastery near Antioch. He probably hadn't had a higher secular education. He was greatly admired as a preacher, not quite on the level of St. John Chrysostom, John the Golden Mouth, but he was sometimes compared to Chrysostom. And Probably for that reason, he was chosen by the emperor in 428 to be Bishop of Constantinople. The 
emperor had to attend church as part of his imperial duties. He had to listen to sermons from the Bishop of Constantinople, so he wanted to have someone who would preach good sermons. That perhaps is why Nestorius was chosen. But he wasn't a diplomat. He wasn't skilled in the ways of the court. There's a certain hardness in his character. He was sincere, but rather narrow and tactless. And he upset the members of the imperial house by sometimes not expressing himself very gently. Now, Cyril, we don't know when he was born, he died about 444. Unlike Nestorius, he had received an elaborate higher education in classical studies, and he was nephew of Patriarch Theophilos of Alexandria, whom he succeeded. Being Patriarch ran in the family. Like Nestorius, he was a man of determined character, as patriarch, he initiated a fierce campaign against Jews and pagans. He was, yes, somewhat ruthless, perhaps jealous of his authority. A great father of the church, genuinely devoted to study, not just an ecclesiastical politician, but a creative theologian. On my shelves, I have his writings from an edition of the early 18th century, seven folio volumes. I regret to say I haven't read every page, but if you keep books on your shelves long enough, by a process of osmosis, the contents seep through the covers and you have the impression that you know what's inside. Perhaps that is a little dangerous. Now, given the characters of Nestorius and Cyril, both somewhat fierce, I wouldn't like to have either of them as my examiner for my DPhil thesis, I have to say. Both very sincere persons, yes, of real Christian life, but the confrontation of the two on grounds of their personality was likely to cause trouble. Let us remember, yes, Cyril is a saint and doctor of the church, but even saints may have their shadow side. So it was perhaps unfortunate on grounds of personality, that these two were at the leadership of the Eastern Church, one in Constantinople, one in Alexandria, at the same period. Ecclesiastical politics is involved in their dispute. Which shall be the first sea in the Christian East? Alexandria used to be the first, but then in the 4th century, when Constantinople became the capital, it was put 
above Alexandria, but the patriarchs of Alexandria hoped to reassert their preeminence in Eastern Christendom. There were also difficulties between Cyril and Nestorius because of differences in terminology. But I would like to try and go to the heart of the dispute and try to understand what was going on on the theological level. When Nestorius became Patriarch of Constantinople, he found a dispute already going on concerning the Blessed Virgin Mary. Should she be termed Theotokos or not? Now, the term Theotokos, birth giver of God, had in fact quite a long history. As I'd mentioned, it was used by Origen, it was used by Athanasius also, and by, among others, uh, St. Gregory the Theologian. But some people were unhappy about it. How could God have a mother, they asked. Was this not exalting the position of the Holy Virgin to too high a level? Nestorius, perhaps rather unwisely, launched into this dispute and argued that it would be better not to call the Holy Virgin Theotokos. Let's try to understand his reasons, why he felt reservations on this point. And Let's uh, try to understand the good things that may be said about him. It is not enough just to label somebody a heretic. Yes, Nestorius has been condemned for heresy, but he was a sincere man. He was genuinely anxious to explain the Christian faith in clear terms. So let's try to understand the questions in his mind. Why did he take up this position over the title Theotokos? As I have said, the strong point of the Antiochian tradition to which Nestorius belonged was its appreciation of the full humanness of Christ. For Nestorius, the salvation was a divine act, but the organ and instrument whereby salvation was effective was human. We are to see in Christ, said Nestorius, the victory not just of God, but of man. So Nestorius is emphasizing the second of our principles of salvation, that salvation has to meet the point of human need. 
in discussing the manhood, the humanness of the Savior, he made three points, and they are all good points. The human nature of Christ, he said, is first of all free. Secondly, it is, let us say, factual. And thirdly, yeah, he's treading on more uh, controversial ground, it is form. So Christ took free human nature. Here, Nestorius makes a lot of Philippians 2.8, that Christ was obedient unto death. And this obedience, says Nestorius, was voluntary. It was free. The human nature of Christ was not just a passive instrument. Christ was really tempted. Here again, Nestorius wants to give full value to Hebrews 4.15, tempted in everything exactly as we are. Nestorius wants to say that Christ's human nature was genuinely like our human nature. He wants to say that nothing was done in pretense in Christ. There was no play acting. So, Christ's decisions made in his humanness were the result of a genuine moral struggle. Gethsemane matters. Christ was really tested at that moment. He felt a real fear of death. It was only after a painful, anguished struggle that he consented to the divine plan to go forward to his death. We are not to say he was God, and therefore uh, it was a foregone conclusion that he would follow the divine plan. Yes, he was God, but he was truly tempted as man. Though Nestorius then, the first point he wishes to make is that Christ's humanity was free, that he was voluntarily obedient, that he was genuinely tempted. <clears throat> then Nestorius makes a second point. Christ's humanity was factual, by which I mean it was individualized. The Alexandrian tradition 
tended to say that Christ took universal manhood. And yes, Christ in becoming man is the second Adam, as Irenaeus insisted, summing up within himself the whole human race. But Nestorius insists Christ did not just take upon himself a kind of abstract humanness. He did not just become a man, he became a man. He was specifically an individual human being. Therefore, we are to see the struggles not just of some abstract humanness, but of a real person, specific manhood, individualized. And then he made a third point. Christ did not take just an ideal manhood. He took fallen humans. Here, Nestorius is making a distinction, though he doesn't do so with absolute clarity, between person and nature. As a person, Christ did not sin, but he took human nature such as we know it because of the fault. Let me read what Nestorius himself says. He took a nature which had sinned. Otherwise, had he taken a nature not subject to sins, he might be supposed not to have sinned on account of the nature and not on account of the obedience. But although he had all those things that belong to our nature, anger, concupiscence, and thoughts, and though they increased with the progress and increase of every age in his life, he stood firm in the thoughts of obedience. Now you notice there the stress on his obedience, which I've already mentioned, and it's quite clear what Nestorius wants to say is that Christ was really tempted, as Hebrews affirms, tempted in everything as we are, only without sinning. So he makes a distinction between the nature and the obedience. On the level of nature, Christ took fallen nature. But on the level of person, in the choices that he made, in the way he exercised his free will, he never sinned. So Nestorius certainly did not think Christ was a sinful person. Absolutely not. But he wanted to say that Christ lived out his life 
under the conditions that we know because of sin. Now, was he entirely wrong in wanting to emphasize all this? Yes, but Nestorius has a weak point. This is his failure to develop a convincing doctrine of Christ's personal unity. Now, Yes, Nestorius believes that Christ is true God. He believes that Christ is truly human. And he develops this in the three ways that I've mentioned. That Christ's humanness is free, factual, and form. But has he found an effective way of saying that Christ is one. Now, here there is a weak point in Nestorius, in his use of the word prosopon, meaning person. By prosopon also means mask or appearance or collection of individual characteristics. Nestorius has a rather confusing doctrine of prosopic exchange. He says the Godhead had its own prosopon, the manhood had its own prosopon. They exchange one another's prosopa, and this produced the prosopon of union. Now, when he says that the Godhead had its prosopon, the manhood, had its prosopon, he doesn't mean literally that uh, Christ was two persons. He was accused of saying this. That is the traditional view of what the Nestorian heresy is. But he certainly never said anything so crude and absurd as that. When he said that Godhead and manhood each had its own prosopon, what he meant was each has its own collection of personal characteristics. But when he talked about them exchanging their prosopon through the incarnation and thus producing the prosopon of union, their prosopon is much closer to what we today would mean by person, personal subject. So in his doctrine of prosopic exchange, there's a sleight of hand, a trick, because perhaps without realizing it, he's using the word prosopon in an ambiguous sense. We have to be very careful how we use words as the Chinese emperor insisted. And really, his doctrine of prosopic exchange doesn't explain anything at all. So, 
probably Nestorius's intentions were good, but he is guilty of separatism. Putting too great a distinction between the Godhead and the humanness, between the two natures of Christ. And he fails to allow for the practice I mentioned earlier, the exchange of predicates, the communicatio idiomatum, the communication of idioms. In other words, he excludes largely the practice of using language about Christ that applies human experiences to God. That's why he doesn't like Theotokos. He doesn't want to say God was all. And he doesn't like language which ascribes suffering to God. He doesn't like uh, language which says that in Christ God suffered on the cross and God died on the cross. No, he says, this really won't do. Here are typical remarks of his. One who was two or three months old, I would not call God. And again, I cannot worship a God who was born, who died and was buried. Now, here we can see behind such remarks a typically Antiochene concern to preserve unimpaired the transcendence and the immutability of God. But when in the Alexandrian tradition, in Athanasius and indeed before him in Origen, we find statements about God being born and God dying. Athanasius and Origen did not mean to ascribe birth and death to the divine nature, not to Christ in his divine nature. God as God does not undergo birth or death. But they were ascribing these things to the person of the God-man not to the word in his eternal nature, but to the word made flesh. They were not ascribing these things to the divine nature. They were ascribing it to the divine human person of the incarnate Christ. And this is where I think Nestorius went wrong. He didn't see that everything that Christ does and suffers is to be ascribed to the Logos, to the world. We should not distinguish in Christ two subjects. There is only one subject, and that is the eternal word who has become human. Now, Nestorius tended to divide the sayings, the actions, the sufferings of Christ, and to say some things were said and done by Christ as God and some things by Christ as man. That's all right. 
But when you start saying some things are to be ascribed to the divine nature, some things to the human, then you're risking a division in Christ, and you're making him into two persons. So, yes, Christ does some things as God and does some things as man, but it's always the one Christ who does everything. The, the Antiochians, and Nestorius in particular, if you pressed them, would probably have thought of the human soul of Christ as a second subject alongside the divine logos. Cyril's answer is there is no second subject. The human soul of Christ is not a second person beside the logos, but it is simply the logos existing in a fully human way, thinking, knowing, feeling, and willing in a human manner. No second subject. So this, I think, is where the weakness of Nestorius lies. But he was unwise to challenge the title Theotokos, because this was already established in Christian prayer and devotion for at least two centuries before him. In fact, during the fifth century, there was a great development of devotion to the Holy Mother of God. In the early Christian period, yes, she was loved and honored, but she was not greatly emphasized in early Christian worship. It takes time for things to emerge in the life of the Church. God does things gradually. And so it was with the understanding of the place of Mary in the scheme of salvation. In the early 5th century, however, there was a great emergence of devotion to God's mother. And Cyril was one of the leading exponents of this. He wrote beautiful sermons about Our Lady. And Nestorius seems to have been worried about this. On one occasion, he said, okay, if you really want to call um, Mary Theotokos, I don't mind. Only don't make the Holy Virgin into a goddess. That was what worried the reformers in the 16th century, the Protestants. They felt that Mary had been almost exalted into being a fourth member of the Holy Trinity. That was needless to say, from our orthodox point of view, a misunderstanding. Of course, Mary is fully human. She needed to be saved by Christ just as much as we all need to be saved. But she had a unique closeness to her son, and it is on that grounds that we honour her. Nestorius was not exactly a proto-Protestant, but... Um, he obviously was worried about the development of a devotion to 
our blessed lady. Watch out, he said. Perhaps he was not entirely wrong. So I've tried to make as good a case as I can for Nestorius, even to those whom the Church has rejected in its wisdom, rejected as heretics, and that is true of Nestorius, we should yet allow for the fact that many of the heretics were neither fools nor knaves. They had serious reasons for saying what they wanted to say. Therefore, let us be fair to Nestorius. But let us be careful. Let me tell you a story from my teaching experience in the University of Oxford. When, for the first time, I was going to give a lecture on Nestorius, I prepared for the following day a lecture along the lines that I have been talking to you now. The night I had a dream. I was in Egypt. I was in the desert, running through the sand. And after me, I was being pursued by somebody extremely angry. And this person was none other than St. Cyril of Alexandria. And you know how it is in dreams, how often you suddenly feel helpless. You want to run away, but you can't do so. You are somehow paralyzed. That was how it was for me. As I struggled on through the sand, I sank in deeper and deeper, and this angry figure behind me drew closer and closer. And just as he caught up with me, I woke up. And I thought to myself, ought I to change my lecture? And then I thought, no, let me give it in the form that I intended. But next week, let me give a lecture that is vehemently and enthusiastically in support of St. Cyril. So, in my next talk, I will try and look at the dispute between Cyril and Nestorius from the point of view of the Archbishop of Alexandria. Thank you for listening to the Athens and Jerusalem podcast. If you enjoyed the lecture, you can purchase Metropolitan Callistos's complete course online at theosisacademy.org. We look forward to next week when we will release another lecture from His Eminence. Until then, enjoy your weekend and God bless.